Welcome to the Veridical Podcast. I'm Jack Cesare. Alright, nothing's ever quite new under the sun. The human race continues to provide hundreds of despairing topics in the news. I wish I had time to go into depth on a lot of these. And I also wish I knew more about the content of these. I would love to reveal some of my positions and perspectives on the abortion debate. However, I think I should let that one fester for a little bit longer. A lot of crazy developments in the manosphere with Andrew Tate and his goons. Lots of development with the Trump dynasty. I will now admit to being wrong on a topic on episode 5 where I covered the book Trumpocracy. I said Trump is old news. His identity cult is not old news, but he himself is. I've since been proven wrong. It appears the orange man is running again. And contrary to what I used to believe, I think he has a chance. And the reason I think he has such a good chance at making it far in the race is because of the self-destruction and masochism from the illiberal left. When the illiberal left bathes itself in irrationalism and incoherency and inconsistency, they are bound to make enemies of the common person. When the illiberal left allows and defends 300-pound trans wrestlers to just body slam biologically female wrestlers, they are bound to confuse many. When the illiberal left denounces so many clear aspects of reality, and if you think this is my position on the transgender discussion, you're wrong. But the denouncement of obvious biological facts and biological science is being thrown out the window. And the common man is almost fed up with it. I anticipate that if the left, I should say the illiberal left, keeps making ridiculous claims and having irrational and unimportant and boring and just idiotic dialogue, they cannot be surprised when a Trump or one of Trump's goons comes around and wins an election. Because all the people who do not spend time in the news or do not research each candidate diligently, but lives in society and experiences the liberal left, will vote for anyone who claims to be able to undo some of these norms. Moving on, because uh, there are other topics to discuss here, I am becoming extremely uneasy with my position at Dallas Theological Seminary. There has been a lot of development with my experiences there, and almost none of it is good. Today was probably the nail in the coffin. I have been intending to stay and finish my degree there because I like a challenge, and I think it's important to expose myself to conflicting worldviews and allow myself to grow and learn and become well-versed in ideas that I may disagree with. However, I'm noticing character developments in myself that are not good. And even though I'm young, I still value my time on this earth. And I have to ask myself, do I want to spend two years at a place that is having such a negative toll on my mental health? I honestly don't know. It is a serious challenge. I, of course, think I'm up for it. I would love to continue to grow and learn new things and challenge myself and also work on counter-arguments, but also be willing to concede some of my own worldview points 
if they can successfully convince me. But there are points that DTS stands by that just disgust me. And I'm noticing them coat my mind in negative feelings. I have to listen to 50-year-old PhD professors talk about how the world is 6,000 years old, or people live to the age of 900, or how the eschaton can't be shuffled in until literal governing Israel allows it to be, right? These are absurd ideas, and there's no good reason to believe them. On top of this, I have been having terrible interactions with a professor, and they are getting very emotional and very taxing on my patients. Today I had a meeting with him. We did not have a good faith conversation. I tried very hard to be the person that I'd be proud of after the meeting, and I failed. I hate who I was today in that meeting, but I also hate who my professor was in that meeting. I have never encountered someone so eager to deliberately misinterpret me. And because I'm still very emotional and very upset about this interaction today, I'm going to save my speech for a time where my thoughts are more gathered. Now, before we begin the podcast today and discuss our book, I want to talk about the layout of the podcast. So... I began to realize that 30 minutes of an objective overview, followed by 30 minutes of an op-ed, is not the most entertaining and most efficient way of covering a book. I realized that I would cover a topic at the beginning of the book, and when it came time to my personal view, I'd have to loop all the way back around to a point that was mentioned at the very beginning. Created a lot of circular moments. So, I'm going to try something different this time. I think I'm just going to bleed the two together. That may sound lazy, but we'll see how it goes. Alright, today's book is The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. Sam got a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. He also has a philosophy degree from Stanford. He has about three decades of Western meditation practices. He is a famous podcaster. He's written many New York Times bestsellers, obviously the one we're talking about today, The Moral Landscape, as well as The End of Faith, Lying, Waking Up, and others. Sam is also my hero and one of my biggest influencers, if not the biggest influencer I have. Sam has been one of the tone setters for my life. I can go into great detail about this. It'll probably bleed out throughout the podcast. The fact that I am pretty calm about talking about his book right now is a miracle. Sam is a famous atheist, and he really came on the scene with his first New York Times bestseller, The End of Faith, which he began writing the day after 9-11. Now, I want to clarify something. When people, particularly Christians are big fans of atheists, it's usually in a derogatory sense, or in a patronizing sense. As in, look at this cute atheist who thinks he's smart. He's really motivating to me. Well, that's not my relationship to Sam. I clearly disagree with Sam on many points, but Sam has caused my worldview to change in a way that is uncomfortable for many Christians. And I'm okay with that. Sam has taught me the good ethics of arguments and has made my second religion come to life. That is the religion of conversation. I now fully place all my earthly faith in the power of conversation. I really believe as long as two people are of good faith and of good will, any disagreement can be parsed out with conversation. And... If it is not possible between two people, it rests solely on one of those individuals not being willing to change their mind. As I was saying, Sam got famous 
with his first book, The End of Faith, which was his critical examination of religions, and it kind of started a wave in new atheism. Now, this wave involved many different people, but they weren't all really intertwined. It was kind of the rest of the world lumped them into a group and called them the new atheist. He never really found solace there. He is a self-proclaimed atheist, and he does spend a lot of time critiquing religions. He read another book, A Letter to a Christian Nation, where the title speaks for itself. But other than that, he's found his interest in other topics, those of morality, tech, meditation, the use of psychedelics, politics, and other more earthly matters. Before we discuss the book, I want to give one more bit of preamble. And it's my personal relation to this book. So I'm going to take us back real quick to 2020. Now, I had just begun having serious and intentional inquiries about my religion and my personal beliefs. I believe I became a Christian through good arguments, as well as an experience with the Holy Spirit. But to be honest, that experience is something I assure myself of. I can't actually retrace it. A lot of it was just being convinced of Christianity, and I'm okay with that. And I think convincing someone that they need to have some esoteric out-of-body experience with some crazy poltergeist-like Holy Spirit is an unfair expectation to set. And when people only hear silence when they pray, we often take that as them having a poor relationship with God or that they're not seriously inquiring to the Holy Spirit. This is dangerous. Not only is it dangerous, it's false. And I think I am good living proof of this. Nonetheless, at that time, I was seriously beginning to doubt my religion. A lot of the political movements with Donald Trump and his goons, as well as ridiculous claims about science, the crazy COVID denials, the intertwinement of racist ideologies, all often being justified with my religion, really deeply concerned me. I also had some personal instances where major leaders in the faith were completely falling away. This is where the fall of Ravi Zacharias was unveiled. Shortly after his death, um, he was revealed to being just a predator, a sexual assaulter, um, just a terrible, terrible person. Um, if you don't know the story of Ravi Zacharias, just look it up. Uh, I'll leave that to you guys to do. And so I was really doubting the validity of my religion. But one thing that always held me down and kept me assured in the faith was the idea of the moral argument. Uh, this sounds quite technical, but it's pretty simple. It is the idea that objective morality cannot exist without a God. That any moral claim is purely subjective and self-centered unless there is an outside grounding of it. If materialism is true and God is not real, then that means that every moral idea is just an opinion. And you kind of lose your ability to say that Hitler or Mao or Pol Pot or Stalin was wrong in what they did. Now, though this sounds crazy, on paper, it is true. This is not a claim that non-believers don't know objective morality. It's quite the opposite. Everyone knows objective morality. And as the Bible states, it's written on our hearts. You don't need to read the Bible or be a Christian to understand objective morality. You don't need someone to tell you that murder is wrong to know that murder is wrong. And you don't need someone to tell you that rape is wrong to know that when you hear about it or see it or even find evidence of it, that it is a heinous crime. This is the effects of objective morality. And this idea is what brought me a lot of comfort in my doubts. But then it got brought to my attention that this man, Sam Harris, makes a claim for objective morality on materialistic and scientific means 
and completely excludes the existence of a God. Now, if this was true, this would shatter my worldview. And in a time when I was seriously doubting the faith, this seemed like the last thing to help. But what's important to note is I didn't want help staying a Christian. I wanted help knowing the truth. Because as I've said many times, my loyalty is with reality, not my religion. It just so happens my religion aligns pretty well with the reality, at least so I think. So I took on the challenge and read the book, The Moral Landscape. Now, it didn't convince me that objective morality can exist exterior of a god, but it certainly sparked my interest, and it made a good case. I think Sam presents a really strong argument here. I think he misses the point just barely, but I think his overall statements and overall conclusions and observations are extremely intelligent and need to be taken seriously. Any Christian who blows off Sam or like-minded thinkers as ignorant or patently wrong or just so obviously lost and deranged, these are terrible interpretations of these thinkers. And I have big confidence that many Christians are not ready or even willing to confront Sam's arguments. Regardless, we are going to walk through this book together, and we're going to start off with Sam's thesis. He claims that though science often tells us what is, it often doesn't tell us what is ought to be true. And so he makes a claim that science can tell us what ought to be true, giving us uh, ought being a, a moral uh, term here. He says that while the argument I make in this book is bound to be controversial, it rests on a very simple premise. Human well-being entirely depends on events in the world and on the states of the human brain. He holds that morality is not on a linear spectrum, but rather on a three-dimensional planes with valleys and mountain peaks. So, a culture or a society may get to the top of one peak, that being a more moral society, and it may be a good peak, it may even be a great peak, but there may still be a peak higher. Likewise, there can be valleys but then there can also be trenches. And different moral values rest on different peaks. But the higher the peak, the better the well-being. Well-being is a term that's used throughout this book. Well-being uh, is loosely defined, and that's one of my criticisms of this book. Uh, Sam would probably say that it's the state of the human brain at any given moment. And to be honest, at first, I was quite bothered by this claim, because I still stood that there's no arbiter of these moral values. But he frames it in a way that's very compelling. He gives the example that, imagine a toxic dust fell on the earth from space and made everyone extremely uncomfortable. All we need to imagine is a scenario in which everyone loses a little or a lot without being compensated. So, like, no one learns any important lessons, no one profits from others' losses. It seems uncontroversial to say that a change that leaves everyone worse off by any rational standard can be reasonably called bad if this word is to have any meaning at all. And here he gets into the linguistics of bad. He talks about the moral argument that Christianity makes and that I uh, still stand by does not hold the weight it holds because of the... Uh, basically the nervous system, essentially. Uh, as long as there is something telling your brain to stop doing a particular thing, getting your hand off a stove, feeling worried about an uh, interaction, feeling anxiety about an up upcoming event, these are evolutionary advancements to the body. Right? Right? Being worried or anxious is actually a very helpful tool in the body, and I agree completely. Right? You want to be worried when you're in a dangerous situation. That worry or anxiety helps you be more aware of your surroundings, helps you plan a escape. I mean, you can imagine the uh, humans evolving in Africa um, thousands and thousands of years ago would want to be worried if they were around predatory animals. And obviously being worried or anxious takes a physical toll on the body. But obviously when you're in a camp, or in a safe area, your anxiety lowers. Anxiety and fear in this sense 
though often attributed to irrational things today, used to be a very helpful tool in our body. Now, approaching this from a moral and philosophical standpoint, you can't necessarily say that anxiety is morally bad, or fear is morally bad. You can only say that the instances that make them arise is bad, or your fear of something that you should not be fearful of is bad. If you are scared to commit to a relationship that you know will be beneficial to you, or if you are scared to donate or sacrifice a bit of yourself or your finances for something that is net benefit, that fear can be grounded in something that you should not be fearful of. However, fear itself is not morally bad. Many Christians will say that fear, or anxiety even, is sinful. Uh, now this is uh, absurd, and most of the time, if someone is saying this, they're not someone really worth listening to. Um, but they often attribute this to a couple verses in the Bible. But when reading these, it's quite obvious that God is, uh, or Christ even, is telling them to not be fearful on a particular event, or to a particular occasion. Not, don't be fearful ever. This is because fear and anxiety, as I stated, are beneficial tools to human evolution. But Sam does spend the majority of the beginning of this book um, disregarding religion and trying to navigate the religious arguments for objective morality. And it does get interesting when he gets into the social views on morality. Now, this book was written in 2010, but his concerns here are just evergreen. They're extremely relevant today. Morality in the culture on a uh, personal level and also on a major societal level is extremely askewed. And Sam acknowledges this. This is not something that can only be realized by Christianity. And I can't believe I even have to point that out. However, there are a lot of moral dead ends by the I don't want to say uh, progressive society because uh, I think progressive societies are good, but the illiberal societies are just establishing moral dead ends, especially in the name of tolerance. I hesitate to sound like the typical right-wing uh, leftist bashing uh, media today, so uh, take this warning and heed that I am very much not trying to do that, but let me think of a good example. Okay, take Linda Sarsour. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. She is a political activist today, and uh, I think in 2017 was co-chair for a women's march, and she says the hijab, the niqab, the burqa, these are signs of empowerment. These are signs of... Um, womanhood and professionalism and pride and honor, right? Yet most people that are wearing these are not wearing them by choice. And she will not acknowledge this, right? Most women living in these bags do not want to be. And they often wear them because if they take them off, they'll get their skull cracked in. Okay, this is cognitive dissonance. This is illiberalism in a hope to be tolerant. Sam writes in the book here uh, a similar interaction that he had. I'll read this out. Um, so he's meeting with a woman who was just recently at the time uh, promoted to the President's Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, that is President Obama. And this is his conversation. Uh, she said, what makes you think that science will ever be able to say that forcing women to wear burqas is wrong? Sam responds, because I think that right and wrong are a matter of increasing or decreasing well-being, and it is obvious that forcing half the population to live in cloth bags and beating or killing them if they refuse is not a good strategy for maximizing human well-being. She replies, but that is only your opinion. He says, okay, let's make it even simpler. What if we found a culture that ritually blinded every third child by literally plucking out his or her eyes at birth? Would you then agree that we had found a culture that was needlessly diminishing human well-being? She replied, it would, would depend on why they are doing it. 
Sam says that slowly returning my eyebrows from the back of my head, let's say that we were doing it on the basis of religious superstition. In their scripture, God says, every third must walk in darkness. She then replies, then you could never say that they were wrong. Now, this book was written over a decade ago, but you can find more people like this today. I'm sure of it. And I'm recording this around the time where the protests in Iran over the two girls that were killed for not wearing their hijabs is happening. There is, thankfully, a lot of uproar in that nation. And this is what progress looks like. This is true progressivism. This is true liberalism. But the people out here saying that the burqas and hijabs and niqabs are signs of honor and our empowerment are diluted and are not only being the most unhelpful people in the world, but are also dangerous. This mentality, in my opinion at least, is dangerous as it fuels the exact problem, right? If you are a country and you are forcing your women to wear these sacks and you look over at what is arguably the most advanced country being America and the dominant thought in America is that you are empowering your people by doing this, you will not look to America as a threat to your ideas, right? You can rest assured that the white girls in America will not stand in the way of your radical policies. As Sam continues, contrary to the ideas of most Christians, of course, he's arguing for objective morality. He says that moral relativism, however, tends to be self-contradictory. Relativists may say that moral truths exist only relative to a specific cultural framework, but this claim about the status of moral truth purports to be true across all possible frameworks. So, in practice, relativism almost always amounts to the claim that we should be tolerant of moral difference, because no moral truth can supersede any other. This is a dead end, right? This is where the accusations of terrible moral ideas falls apart. Now, you can only criticize morality if it's coming from a white person, or if it's coming from a conservative. Now, again, I am less conservative than I am liberal, and I hesitate to say I'm about as secular as I am Christian, but this is my observation, that the stigmatization exceeds much more when it's against a Christian or against a conservative. And many times conservatives and Christians are championing stupid, idiotic, immoral ideas, right? We just had to sit by while Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott put illegal aliens on a bus and drove them around and dropped them off on people's yards as jokes, right? This is, this is a prank. Imagine you just crossed the border, risked your life, Maybe one of your friends got raped by a coyote and you get here and not only are you not welcomed, you are then not joked with, but you are the joke. You are the pun, right? And I watched plenty of Christians, well-off Christians and conservatives laugh at this, right? When you take another human and turn them into the joke and use them as a object so you can trash on the liberals and just bathe in liberal tears, you are as immoral as it gets. I mean, that is pretty damn near the bottom. I have been the witness of many stupid and immoral ideas from fellow Christians, and we need to criticize them, and we should, and we should shame people who have terrible immoral ideas, but the standard needs to be consistent across all cultures, and across all people, right? We should be able to criticize a transgender disabled person if they have a terrible idea that causes harm. We should be able to criticize another religion other than Christianity, such as Islam, if it's forcing its people to live in bags. I don't know how this is controversial. Sam doesn't understand how this is controversial. Yet it is. It appears in our attempts to establish ourselves as moral beings when we virtue signal or even when it's something innocent 
when we are genuinely trying to advocate or protest or do something in the name of morality, we have lost our basis for morality that we try to start from. As I said, Sam, as a major critic of religion, spends a lot of this book uh, being exhausted at ideas that stem from Christianity. And here he writes, In the United States, a majority of people, 57%, believe that preventing homosexuals from marrying is a moral imperative. However, if this belief rests on a flawed sense of how we can maximize our well-being, such people may simply be wrong about morality. And the fact that millions of people use the term morality as a synonym for religious dogmatism, racism, sexism, or other failures of insight and compassion should not oblige us to merely accept their terminology until the end of time. This is a great point. Just because someone does something in the name of morality does not deem it so. And also, just because you have a majority consensus does also not deem it so. And when you scale this to look at different nations, you are put in a really awkward position. At one point, the majority of our country uh, believed slavery was good. Uh, Hitler was an elected official. Hell, Donald Trump was an elected official. Right? These people, in some sense, one way or another, won the majority. Right, right. We can look back through history. There are many times when the majority was in fact wrong. And a consensus idea, though tempting, cannot be used to gauge morality. Right? All you have to do is study the madness of crowds, study crowd mentality, study fear. And all you need is one person to plant a lie and have the majority to believe it in order to dictate the moral baseline of the majority. Right? This is a slippery slope, and it's a slippery slope at best, if not just a terrible idea. And this should leave you, the listener, with a bit of a challenge. Are you basing a lot of your worldview on what the majority deems moral? Or can you find the core reason why your belief is in fact moral? Uh, it is important we, as people, uh, do this daily. Find out why you do things. Are you giving to the homeless because someone is watching? Or is it because at its core, that is a good thing to do? Are you donating or tithing or doing any of these things with your name attached? I mean, this is something to be analytical of. Now, a common misconception is that doing good deeds needs to be private. It needs to be done in secrecy or else you're, you're boasting. Well, this comes from a lot of people that think morality uh, is separated from selfishness. But the truth is, and as Sam is about to point out in this book, the two can be married and oftentimes are. For example, if you are donating to a charity and you think that charity is a worthy contender for your money, and you tell people about this charity, and you tell people that you're donating, that can oftentimes be a motivation for others to do it. One must realize that it's not immoral to be vocal or outgoing or public with your donations or your good deeds. What is truly immoral is, or what could be immoral, is the position of the heart or the soul while one is doing this. And oftentimes the only people that are capable of judging that are the people themselves, right? The only person that can truly know your heart during one of these boastful moments is you. Now, Sam gets into the idea of selfishness and morality and evolution here in the uh, second chapter called Good and Evil. He writes, Many people imagine that the theory of evolution entails selfishness as a biological imperative, this popular misconception has been very harmful to the reputation of science. In truth, human cooperation and its attendant moral emotions are fully compatible with biological evolution. He writes about how many times one person is willing to sacrifice himself for a relative. This falls into the idea of kin selection, that the success of your relatives, their genes being passed on, is in one way your success. However, the question turns to when you are altruistic towards a stranger 
or someone outside of your camp. Obviously, Christian and non-Christian alike would all agree that this is a moral thing to do. But why? It doesn't benefit your own tribe, and it doesn't benefit your own bloodline. So why do it? Now, as a man of faith, and as a Christian, I of course think this is because we are all made in the image of God. We are all image bearers. And though tribalism is a glitch development from evolution, I think this altruism towards strangers is proof of the moral law being written on our hearts. We don't need to read the Bible to know that this is a good thing. Now, before I get into the next point, I want to clear up a misconception. And I try to clear this up anytime I get the chance to. Just because science shows the results of a particular action. For example, Yuval Noah Harari recently pointed out that a car or a beautiful wife can't bring you happiness. Serotonin and dopamine, these things bring you happiness. And I'm sure he said this in a comedic sense, although it is true. Anytime you're happy or anytime you're joyful, these chemicals are there. But one misconception that is really starting to be apparent to me is these chemicals emerging is not to say the source of happiness or the cause of happiness, right? These could be the effect of happiness from an immaterial position, right? Your soul can be happy, and as a result, your body releases these chemicals. These chemicals are not the final layer of bedrock of happiness. There is very much room for more there. So, continuing on regarding selfishness and morality and evolution, he points out how Jeffrey Miller deems sexual selection as the motivation for moral behavior. He talks about how morality and a good sense of it can be attractive. It can be a sign of a good mate. Similar to a peacock's tail, it is costly to produce and maintain, but beneficial to one's genes in the end. Sam writes, Clearly, our selfish and selfless interests do not always conflict. In fact, the well-being of others, especially those closest to us, is one of our primary, and indeed most selfish, interests. While much remains to be understood about the biology of our moral impulses, kin selection, reciprocal altruism, and sexual selection explain how we have evolved to be not merely atomized selves enthralled to our self-interests, but social selves disposed to serve a common interest with others. What brings me comfort to point out, though, is that the theory of altruism towards complete strangers and a good sense of morality is attractive, and I would deem it is attractive, is the explanation for how it arose, is just a theory. And that leaves plenty of room for other explanations for why altruism towards strangers exists. Sam then ventures into the idea of moral cognition and how a lot of times our gauge of morality or imperativeness is extremely skewed. Okay, take for instance these ads for uh, helping others and, and charities and whatnot. It has now been proven that if I take an ad and I show you a little girl in Africa who is missing an arm and needs you to donate, uh, that will spark your interest to a degree. But when I put her brother in the picture and say, oh, he's also hungry, the feeling that people have towards helping decreases. And it decreases with the more people we add to the problem. The bigger the problem, the less people seem to care. This is a glitch. This is a bug, not a feature, in our moral cognition. And this gets into the topic of charities a little bit and how we spend our money. Paul Bloom does a good job at unveiling more of this in depth in his book, Against Empathy. But I will touch on it here. Oftentimes we don't care where our money goes. It is about our self-satisfaction when we donate. I mean, we got to get something out of it, right? But when it comes to giving money, there are better ways than others, obviously. But... Take charities, for example. It appears the most effective charity, at least as of recently, is one that provides bed nets to people in Africa to protect against mosquitoes, because malaria kills 
I don't know, just millions and millions a year. This is a very unsexy charity. It's not cancer. It's not climate change. It's not one of these charities that's extremely fashionable to donate to. It's not helping a cat out of a tree. It's not helping graft skin cells. But it is the most effective. And it's the most effective per dollar. I think every $7 you give can help build a bed net. Meanwhile, every other charity requires much more money to say that you effectively saved a life. This is where our empathy gets in the way a little bit. And uh, I'm not going to spoil this whole book, but this is Paul Bloom's basic thesis, is that empathy creates a moral glitch where we are unobservant and honestly not caring about our moral impact as long as we are morally satisfied. Unfortunately for many humans, morality is not as clear as we think it is. I align with what the Bible says about the moral law being written on our hearts, but we have failed to scale that with societies at large. And I am guilty of this as well, but we have to ask the question, how much money have we spent on recreational things with, if as a society, we tallied it all together, could end homelessness in our country, and countries abroad as well? This failure of recognition is a glitch in our system. I am just now realizing that I have been giving plasma for about two weeks now, but what truly sparked my interest in giving plasma was the $100 a visit. Would I have ever given plasma before if it was not financially compensated? Well, no. It took me to hear about the money that I would get to get me to go, not the fact that plasma is very much needed for all sorts of injuries and disabilities. When I go, there are posters of people that are benefiting from plasma, and they write their story, and they, they even sign it. And I feel this immense sense of gratitude. Oh my gosh, look at what I'm doing. I'm helping save lives. But if you ask me right now, would I still give if I wasn't getting compensated? I hope so. But I can't say for sure. This is why I argue that a utilitarian sense of morality is needed. It's necessary. Because when you orient your worldview around utilitarianism, you are only focused on bringing the most benefit at the cost of anything. I'm sorry you guys are listening to this damn dog bark in the background. It'd be more moral of it to shut up, so I apologize. Moving on, Sam gets into a very interesting topic of the asymmetry between good and evil and gains and losses, right? So it's actually worse. Now, I'm not saying objectively it's worse, but as far as scientific studies on our brain during gains and losses show, we've deemed it more impactful to, for example, lose $100 than it is to gain $100. And this leads to some very interesting observations and some really interesting thought experiments. And Sam writes one here to uh, meditate on. So uh, I'll read it out. Imagine, for instance, that you are impaneled as the member of a jury in a civil trial and asked to determine how much a hospital should pay in damages to the parents of children who receive substandard care in their facility. Here are the two scenarios. Couple A learned that their three-year-old daughter was inadvertently given a neurotoxin by the hospital staff. Before being admitted, their daughter was a musical prodigy with an IQ of 195. She has since lost all her intellectual gifts, she can no longer play music with any facility, and her IQ is now a perfectly average 100. Couple B learned that the hospital neglected to give their three-year-old daughter, who has an IQ of 100, a perfectly safe and inexpensive genetic enhancement that would have given her remarkable music talent and nearly doubled her IQ. Their daughter's intelligence remains average, and she lacks any noticeable musical gifts. The critical period for giving this enhancement has passed. So, in both of these situations... The end result is the same, but one of these, at least to me, does feel distinctly worse, and it is the couple A, the ones that had their daughter's musical abilities taken away from her. It appears that when I read this about two years ago, uh, I wrote here on the side of the page, meditate on the parable of the sowers, and I think that really is what this comes down to, is the second couple the ones whose daughter remained how she was, 
is capable of being completely satisfied in life given her situation, right? right? I'm not upset that I'm not an amazing basketball player right now, but could be, right? If, if there was a pill out there that made me smarter or more athletic, well, I would certainly want it. But failure to get that pill wouldn't ruin me. And I think this realization is a great example of our contention with where we are currently at. Even in the midst of peril, we can find a way to be maybe not satisfied, but at ease. Why is losing $1,000 worse than finding out that you could have made 1000 but didn't? It's because losing $1,000 is a attack, a loss, of what you already had. Uh, granted, you could have had $1,000 but didn't, but you were never at ease with having that $1,000 in the first place. Now, this opens a weird moral door that I've been trying to figure out myself, right? When you look at people in countries that are, uh, take a place like North Korea, right? People there do not know freedom. Uh, pe take people from Afghanistan or Iraq in the height of the war. Some, some of these people have never um, experienced freedom to the degree that we have, right? And, and this is obvious, but it's painful to think about. Now take someone who lives in a country that recently got taken over or recently fell into peril. So you could, even though China's fairly corrupt, China is a good example here. When you look at the state that they are in, these people know what freedom is. These people know what the good life is. And it has now been taken away from them. This will motivate them to act in a way to restore that freedom. I think this is why there are such mass protests in China, but almost none in North Korea, or whenever the Taliban was taken over, the local population merely conformed to keep peace around. This is a uh, unscientific observation, it's just one I'm making myself, but I think there is something to be found here. Building off of the earlier subject of glitches in our moral cognition, Sam visits the topic of psychopathy. Now, psychopathy is a pop culture subject that often gets milked for entertainment purposes and is often miscategorized and even glorified in the media. Certainly, people take psychopathy as a personality trait sometimes. However, this is important to analyze when talking about moral cognition and a lot of the mistakes we make along the way. One is not comforted with the fact that almost about 1% of the population can be classified as psychotic. Sam discusses the anecdotal evidence of a man who was addicted to uh, child porn, but also creating his own. And I'm not going to read the excerpt because it is quite detailed, maybe another time, but uh, talks about, yeah, masochism, sadism, and the abuse of young children. And the people that admit to doing this often do it without any quarrel to their public image, or to their moral cognition in the first place. Obviously, again, this is clearly a glitch in the system, and it ranges from child abuse to orchestrating your life in a way to where you can cheat on your partner without them knowing and being proud of it. And so there's different levels, uh, as the thesis contends, there's different peaks and ditches to the moral landscape. But how do we process these people in our society? Do we merely just lock them up? Or do we try our best to rehabilitate them? What is more costly to our resources? Are we willing to spend those resources to fix them? I don't know. Truly it is that society will always supply a fair amount of psychopaths. Is there a solution to this other than heavy medication or locking them up and forgetting them? I don't know. But rest assured, society will do what it always does with psychopaths. Ignore them. Moving on, the third chapter of the book gets into belief, and because of his critique of religion, there is a lot of content here. But he goes far beyond that. He discusses stigmas, biases, uh, and the neuroscience behind belief. What are the chemical reactions going on during a belief? Interestingly, Sam is probably, and I mean probably, 
one of the first neuroscientists to study belief through the lens of neuroscience. He's done many experiments with proposing different statements to candidates where they would rate believe, don't believe, or undecided. He does nail down, or at least hypothesize, that the prefrontal cortex is most likely involved with belief, although no part of the brain evolved in isolation apart from other parts. So it becomes a little foggy, and there is no way to truly nail down what section is maintaining a belief. It's interesting when they talk about a belief because many people, myself included probably, and probably all of y'all, take a belief to be a personal part of identity. And this is really interesting because it creates a, another malfunction in our brain where it is harder for us to let go of this belief because we've adopted it to our personality. Now, personally, I found a lot of interesting aspects in the STEM fields, that being science, technology, engineering, and math. Now, I am useless at these topics, but I've gained a lot of interest in listening to different people talk about them. So people like Lex Friedman on his podcast, he's really big with technology and uh, AI. And I've had a lot of interest listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson discuss uh, physics and uh, astronomy. And I love listening to them talk and have discourse with others in their field, because when they come across in disagreement, there is nothing holding their belief uh, in place other than evidence, meaning all it takes is counter evidence or proof that it, they are wrong for them to change their mind. There is no emotional baggage. There is no cargo there weighing them down to change their mind. And if all we are concerned with is the truth, that should be how we act on issues of psychology, philosophy, religion, or lack thereof. However, because we find comfort and identity within these beliefs, relinquishing them becomes a much more uh, harder obstacle for us. And maybe it should be. And I do concede there is a lot less trust in the evidence with soft science. Philosophy is, of course, I mean, thinking. There's, of course, neuroscience that can aid in philosophy. And, of course, there's the universal laws of logic. It appears society is drifting away from those. But, nonetheless, we have them. But even within the laws of logic and reason and rationality, there's still a lot of room to branch off. Uh, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe it will help us refine the truth. But our loyalty to our beliefs should solely rest on them being true and nothing more. Now, that is enough of my rant there. But the book then turns to the idea of bias and belief intertwined. Now, this is a really interesting subject because two people can hold the same belief, but hold it for wrong reasons. And an interesting example here is, uh, I'll just read it out. In the year 2003, it was one thing to believe that the United States should not invade Iraq because the ongoing war in Afghanistan was more important. It was another thing to believe the United States should not invade Iraq because you think it's an abomination for infidels to trespass on Muslim land. So two of the same beliefs, completely different reasons. Sam then quotes the neurologist Robert Burton and his discovery that the feeling of knowing, or the idea that you are correct, often is in sync with your loss of reason and logic. The more you think you are correct, the less reasonable you become, even if your belief is in fact correct. This is again, I feel like I'm repeating myself, just a glitch in our system. But knowing this fact, me knowing this fact, and now you knowing this fact, helps you be more aware in the moments of defending your beliefs, even if you are correct. And when you are correct, and you know you're correct, 
you should be more aware than ever of your logic and reason. Because if you have to defend a correct belief, illogically or irrationally, then you may need to revise that belief. However, of course, if it's correct, you need to revise your defense of it. Personally, I observe this far too often with religion. Uh, religions of all types. Unfortunately, especially my own. Uh, the amount of times I have to listen to people defend their belief in God through the most irrational and unreasonable means. Meanwhile, philosophy and science and archaeology just feeds great evidence in support of religion. To the point where these irrational, because God told me he's right, the Bible's true because it says it's true, um, God visited me last night in a dream, he gave me a vision, that's how I know he's true, this feeling of joy and satisfaction can't come from anywhere else, these illogical, irreasonable means need not be present. We have great evidence regardless. In fact, with religion, at least this is my observation, the people that support or defend their religion with irrationality are often the ones that are easiest to fall away when life gets truly taxing. Now, moving on, in the discussion of morality with the contrasting evidence of beliefs, there's a lot of interesting observations to be made. And you can see morality mix with rationality or irrationality with a couple thought experiments. So uh, here's one. I'm going to read it out of the book. This is called the Asian disease problem. Imagine that the United States is preparing for the outbreak of an unusual Asian disease, which is expected to kill 600 people. Two alternative programs to combat the disease have been proposed. Assume that the exact scientific estimates of the consequences of the program are as follows. If program A is adopted, 200 people will be saved. If program B is adopted, there is one-third probability that 600 will be saved, and a two-thirds probability that no people will be saved. Which one of the two programs would you favor? In this version of the problem, a significant majority of people favor program A. The problem, however, can be restated this way. If program A is adopted, 400 people will die. If program B is adopted, there's one-third probability that nobody will die, and two-thirds probability that 600 will die. Which one of the pro two programs would you now favor? Put this way, a majority of respondents will now favor program B, and yet there is no material or moral difference between these two scenarios, because their outcomes are the same. What this shows is that people tend to be risk-averse when considering potential gains, and risk-seeking when considering potential losses. So describing the same event in terms of gains and losses evokes different responses. Now, when I take this observation into my own life, it changes how I approach different problems. I've been able to, in real time, recall this realization and analyze my spending, my investments, my planning around the day. It really does turn you into a more utilitarian-minded individual, one who is truly focused on benefit and is willing to risk things for that benefit. It can be argued that the other individuals who do not realize this are still focused on benefit and loss, uh, loss and gains, but their observation is skewed by the emotional toll of losing or gaining. Moving on from this section, Sam then discusses religion, which is uh, his thoughts on religion are available in many different places. And then he discusses the future of happiness, which is kind of a uh, how-do-we-move-forward idea with all the information in the book. So, I can leave that up to y'all to investigate if you want to. I did not uh, expel all of the contents of this book. This book really did change my life. Um... Not necessarily the content of the book, but what the book was in the time of my life. This book appeared to me, in my plight of religious doubt, to be my greatest threat 
to my worldview. Yet, it only sparked my interest. Now, it didn't affirm my worldview, but it certainly didn't denounce it. It just challenged it. And for the many Christians out there that are worried of interacting with material from non-believers, people set on being non-believers, interacting with this material from Sam has made my faith awkwardly stronger. Though many Christians would hesitate to even call me a Christian, I feel more confident in my faith than ever. And as far as the moral argument for Christianity goes, Sam doesn't dismantle it. He's still, and I've been saving this for the end of the podcast, Sam still fails to account for the origin. Nerve endings cannot be the explanation for morality. There's still plenty of things that happen in the moral sphere that do not interact with nerve endings. Now, you could transition his argument to chemical reactions in the brain, and he does this. But as I stated earlier, you cannot use the moral argument as a tool to denounce religion or anything of immateriality, because having a material signifier of something, so dopamine for happiness or serotonin or, uh, you know, different chemicals for anger or, uh, you know, I think when Robin Williams and others lost their lives, they found out that they were extremely low on dopamine levels. Their dopamine uh, was crashed. That may be an effect rather than a cause. And this has yet to be parsed out. Of course, for other physical effects in the body, these chemical reactions are the cause. I will concede. But the chemical reactions themselves, where do they come from? What starts them? Of course, something else in the body, but you follow this all the way back, there does reach a point where you could, and even though it's could, it doesn't mean it's unlikely, but you could insert an immaterial cause, sort of say. Now, as far as the argument goes, this puts me in a really awkward position, because I stand that dismantling the moral argument is not a way to disprove God. However, the presence of objective morality and the sense of the presence of objective morality is proof of God. So it's kind of an unfalsifiable two-way street. Now, tabling that, I do think there are other ways to disprove God. Now, I am not hoping for the religious position to be dismantled, but if it was to be disproven, I think that would come from a cosmological discovery or a metaphysical discovery, such as we all discover a new drug that convinces us of a different religion. Now, that doesn't mean it'd be true. We'd just all be convinced. Regardless, I still stand that Sam, though not disproving the moral argument uh, from the religious perspective, he does offer plenty of useful and helpful insights into the neuroscience and neurobiology of the brain, the self, and morality, that we can all refine our objective worldviews. If you were a Christian, wouldn't you want all of your worldviews to align 100% with modern science and the modern science that's reliable? Well, you should. And you should also find comfort that nothing to this day in modern science disproves religion. Now, when modern science or modern discoveries find something that contradicts with our religious views, we merely have to revise our religious views. Now, that sounds like heresy to many people. They would say we need to revise our science. Now, that is just unacademic, unscholarly, and unpractical. We cannot merely form our objective observations to our interpretation of a reading. That's just, I mean, that's just madness. So when we found out that, no, the Earth is not 6,000 years old, we didn't have to change our science. We had to change how we read Genesis. Likewise, when our objective moral intuitions lead us to say that women should not be second-class citizens in the church, we don't have to change our morality. We have to change how we read Corinthians. And guess what? 
reading Corinthians doesn't mean we allegorize it and metaphorize it into an oblivion. It means we actually discover very particular and nuanced situations in Corinth at that time to where his message makes perfectly good sense. This is how I remain confident. Every time I seek to revise my reading of scripture to meet the modern standards of objective morality and science, I never have to go uh, in a far stretch with my reading of scripture. My reading actually makes more sense and it often requires a much more in-depth investigation. It is through discoveries like this that motivate me in the faith. As I said, the contents of this book were not exhausted. I think this is one of my favorite books to ever read. I mean, it's definitely in the top five. Uh, this is an exciting book, plenty of great anecdotal uh, testimonies here, but also plenty of science. Uh, it's super interesting, definitely changed how I understand morality, gave me a lot more information to articulate my worldview more effectively, and I encourage everyone to read it. Now, before we close, I would like to leave you with some words. This is Tim Dean, the Honorary Associate in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. The greatest moral challenge of our time? Well, it's how we think of morality itself. In an increasingly interconnected, diverse and multicultural world, it is more important than ever that we reform the way we think and talk about morality itself. If we don't, no matter what other moral challenge you think we face, it will only become harder to solve. I appreciate y'all sitting in on Veridical with me. I am grateful to the guys over there at Small World Podcast. They are the ones that do all the publishing for me. They uh, are the ones that have jump-started this. In fact, supplied a lot of the uh, material and gear. And uh, I continue to remain blown away by the amount of people that have been listening to this without me prompting them to. I mean, it is just a blessing to be able to sit here and walk through these topics with everyone. Now with that said, please find time to read. God bless you. Farewell.